0: That. All right. Is, old folks, what is it? Our turn, turn, turn. It's not often that a piece of scripture, word for word, becomes a best selling song, but in 1965. The passage that we're looking at this morning actually did become that song that you just heard. So that's what's going on. If you don't have any idea what's going on right now, my name is Mark Mullery. Welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. We are about to have a sermon from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you're joining us online or you're here for the first time, thanks for joining us. And um, we've been in a series called Under the Sun And this morning, we're going to hear what is, for many who aren't maybe even familiar with the Bible, a familiar poem, a familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and verses 1 to 15 is the text for this morning, and Psalm 31, verses 14 and 15a is sort of a a commentary that will help us make some sense of this passage. So Diane James is going to read the Scripture for us this morning. Thanks, Diane.
1: He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand.
0: Amen. Thank you, Diane. Let's pray. O God, as we have heard and sung, you are the Lord, the sovereign the king, and you're the king of time. You're the God who makes everything beautiful in its time, and you're the God in whose hands are our times. I pray that you would use this passage of scripture to exalt and magnify yourself in our hearts and minds, and to equip us to follow your son and be missionaries in this world, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're thinking about time this morning. Are you an on-time person? A chronically late person? The kind of person that if you're not there five minutes early, you're actually late? That kind of person? People have different ideas about time. Cultures have different ideas about time. Uh, My friend Stephanie uh, quoted an African proverb to me that says something along the lines of, Westerners have watches and Africans have time. Westerners have watches and Africans have time. Kind of getting at this idea that Africans uh, are working with different goals and targets in mind and not quite so deadline-oriented, maybe a little more relational and people-oriented. But we live in a place of lots of clocks, right? Right? And notifications and deadlines and traffic jams and stressed out late people. It's helpful to know frustration about time has actually been around for a long time. I came across this funny quote. I was working on this sermon. A Roman playwright, it's like a long time ago, Roman playwright. The gods confound the man, he says who has cut and hacked my days so wretchedly into small pieces, confound him who set up a sundial. <laughs> so there you go. Way back there. Frustration about not having enough time. You know that frustration, don't you? I was less than I had the opportunity to be on vacation last week. We were with our kids, and I love when we're together with them, try to get one-on-one time with each of them, and I had time set up with one We were in a place, that, uh, obviously not here, and I I was going to to meet with uh, one of the kids, and on on the way there, I thought I knew where I was going, and I didn't, and I got lost. And uh, I spent most of the time that I was planning to have that one-on-one great conversation, driving around, trying to figure out where I was and how to find the right place. It was very frustrating, because there's no way to get that time back. It's gone. So we're a people who often wonder what time it is and, and not just what's on the clock but also like what's going on in our lives. You may be thinking about the opportunity to have some time this summer for a vacation to hang out or maybe have a break from school. You may be in the military wondering is it time for a this assignment or that assignment. You may be thinking about school. Do I go to this school or is it time to go to that school? Or you may be thinking, is it time to move or time to stay here? Sometimes we can feel like there's always things going on and never enough time to do what we want to do. We can... Maybe have people coming over and feel like there's not enough time to get the house cleaned up the way you'd like it to be or can be late to an appointment and be frustrated about that. Our lives are bound up in time and in seasons and times. And so the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer, the preacher, he calls himself, Kohelet is the Hebrew word for that. He's on a quest to find meaning and satisfaction under the sun, which means apart from God, just in this world without reference to God. And so he's been he's been asking this question, can can we do this? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's sort of the setup question for the for the book back there in chapter one and verse three. And and so to sort of paraphrase that, he's saying, look, can you find meaning and satisfaction in the world but without God? Can can you find it? And so like an explorer, he's been setting out in different paths and directions, looking for that meaning and significance in life apart from God. He's tried pleasure, didn't work. Wisdom, work, those didn't come through either. So the findings so far are that under the sun, life lived without reference to God, it 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 doesn't satisfy. So today he's coming to a new topic, and the topic today is time, life in time, seasons, seasons. Of time. So here's the question that's in front of us today. Can we find meaning and satisfaction in the times and seasons of life? Can we find meaning and satisfaction in life in its various times and seasons? Now the answer is, well, let's find out. We're going to have to listen carefully to what he has to say. So we're going to listen by asking three questions. See, this, this passage of scripture is a poem and then some commentary that comes after it. So we're gonna ask first, how do we read this poem? How do we understand it? Second, we're gonna ask, what do we learn from it? And then third, what do we do with it? So let's take the passage as it comes. These first eight verses are this poem. So how do we read this poem? Let me just, just fine tune that a little bit for you. Is it a poem of futility? Or of faith? Is it pessimistic or is it optimistic? Now, as you listen to it being read, it's clear that Standing by Itself, it's a beautiful poem, isn't it? It's recognized by many. It was, uh, as we heard during the the greeting time, it was a a hit single recording in 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 1965, the King James Version, uh, almost word for word. A time to be born, A time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. These 14 lines sort of encompass our lives time to be born, a time to die, sort of the parentheses around physical life. There's emotional life uh, uh, caught up in here as well, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. You kind of get the the spectrums of emotion in there, almost like we might think about the the joy that one can experience at a wedding and the grief at a funeral. Paul seems to pick up on this in Romans 12 when he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who who weeps. So there's sort of the, the fullness of, of life here, the boundaries of life, in, 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 and all that goes on in those different seasons of life. A time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to seek, a time to lose. So I want to ask you again is this pessimistic or is this optimistic? And you know, it's not that easy to tell. In fact, you can have this experience in Ecclesiastes where sometimes it's hard to read what he's trying to, to, to get at. Sometimes it's hard to, to understand what's the author intending for us to get here. And, and let me be you know, transparent and say, even amongst the commentators, there are sort of different takes on how to read this poem, whether it's optimistic or pessimistic, because there is great beauty here in the language and in the descriptions, but there's no God here in the poem. What do we make of that? Is it futile like most of chapters 1 and 2? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What do you gain? Life under the sun? Nothing. It's empty. Is it, is it that or is it more faith-filled like the very end of chapter 2 as you heard as Justin preached last week that There is the possibility of joy from the hand of God. What do we do? What do we make of this? Well, let me sort of give you the the two options. In the context of kind of the overall letter of Ecclesiastes, I can understand why people would read this as sort of another vanity of vanities. You're stuck on the treadmill of time, and so things happen but you have no control over them, and you're sort of stuck inside of them. There's a we- there can be a weariness and a fatalism, almost sort of like feeling like a puppet on a string, kind of like that flavor if you were here for the message last week. You know, what's the difference between wise people and foolish people? One lives better than the other, but they both end up dead, so what difference does it make, right? Or you're a wise person, you do all this hard work and you, you generate assets and, and maybe a business or, 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 or good things in your family and, and then you die and maybe it's left to somebody who squanders it. So it can, there can be that sense of futility that flavors the book, kind of like the way C.S. Lewis described winters in Narnia, always winter and never Christmas. You're kind of stuck in this treadmill of time. You might try to make things a little better before you die. That's a common human impulse. But why if there's going to be nothing after your seasons here to make a difference? So there can be a sense of futility, and I can understand why people would read this that way, but I don't read it that way. I think there's hope and faith in this passage. And, and the reason is this. If you live under the sun, there's every reason to find times and seasons to be empty and meaningless and despairing. But there's more going on here than that. This is a great lesson in how to interpret your Bible. Hermeneutics is the the technical term for that. Context matters. And when you read a passage of Scripture, the context that matters most is the immediate context that that passage is in. What happens just before and what happens just after? And just before, as I mentioned earlier, well, there's actually hope. There's actually the hope that God gives joy in the midst of toil. That comes from his hand. That's what is is being said at the end of chapter 2. The key verse that I think brings this home to us is in our passage, verse 11. Look there with me. It says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. So there we're not just under heaven they were not just under the sun they were under the god who makes everything beautiful in its time you see god is actively working in the times and seasons of life god isn't just good at knowing what time it is god invented time before there was time there was god think about that god is the ruler of times and seasons this comes home to us when we look at The God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus always knew what time it was. He knew when it was a time to heal and a time to teach. He knew when it was a time to gather disciples and a time to send them out. He knew when it was a time to die and a time to rise again. He criticized people who didn't know what time it was. He says in Luke 12, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The Lord of time makes everything beautiful in its time, and that includes our seasons and time. So I believe the posture of this poem is one of faith in the God who always knows what time it is. So now let's, let's take this poem and look at the commentary on it. We're going to ask this, uh, the question now, if it's, a, if it's a posture of faith, what do we learn from it? What do we learn from this? And here's what we learn. I'm going to give you the answer up front, and then I'll unpack it for you. We learn that God is the potentate of time. Got it? The potentate of time. Not a word that we use a lot. I'll explain it in a moment. But let's look at the text. Look at verse 9 with me, please. Verse 9, right after the poem ends, he says, What gain has the worker from his toil? Now, if you've been here for the series or you're reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, that sounds like that futility from chapter 1 that carries through much of of what he has to say. So we might expect, well, maybe this is a posture of futility. And then verse 10, he says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And it might be, again, there, that it's to be living futile lives if they're living under the sun. But as I I said, the key to interpreting this passage is verse 11. Hear it again. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Slip that key into the lock, and you can open up hope and joy in this passage. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, think about that. How can that be? We live in a world of lots of ugly, horrible things, shootings and Drought and racism and starvation. Oh, there's all kinds of terrible things going on here. How can God make everything beautiful in its time? What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew word for beautiful here is the the same word for the word appropriate. God makes everything beautiful in the sense that there's a timeliness to what's going on. So this doesn't mean that there's nothing bad happening. This doesn't mean we close our eyes to the presence of evil in the world. Quite the opposite. No, what it means is that God is always in control no matter what's happening. God is always a redeemer who's at work for good all over the place. We know this in Romans 8.28. It says, he works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose he makes everything beautiful in its time for his people joseph understood this about god back in genesis 50 his brothers were envious they betrayed him and they trafficked him selling him into slavery what did he say to them in the outcome genesis 50:20 he says you meant this for evil but you weren't the only one at work someone else had something to do in this action God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. God was making something beautiful in that time, even through the sin, the horrible sin of his brothers. We see this nowhere more clearly than at the cross. How can the crucifixion of an innocent person possibly be a beautiful thing? There's no way for that to happen, unless that crucifixion is Jesus Christ hanging on the cross to be the redeemer and the Messiah of all who would come to him. And then that crucifixion, there's beauty in it. God is making everything beautiful in its time because he is the sovereign of time. He is the potentate of time. What does that mean? I've intentionally picked that word. I'm using that word. It's actually drawn from a line in a hymn. You probably know the hymn if you've been around church much, crown him with many crowns. And we'll sing it later in the service. One of the verses that typically doesn't get sung starts like this. Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time. Typically doesn't get sung because nobody knows what a potentate is these days. But a potentate is, is someone who is sovereign. A potentate is the head of state, the king, the monarch, the lord, the sovereign. Now, we're used to living in a democracy where power is intentionally limited because we understand that power corrupts. And as it said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's true everywhere and every place for everyone with one exception, and that is God. So if I were to say God is sovereign over your time, you might nod your head and say, great, I get that. But I want to say God is the potentate of your time. Because sometimes we need to say things a little differently to get our minds to re-engage and be curious and think about and say, what does that actually look like and mean for us? The call to worship, 1 Timothy, God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. That's why he has time in his hands, because he invented time. He lives on either side of time, outside and inside of time. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion to the potentate of time. Revelation 19:16. on Jesus' robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the potentate of all rulers. And, verse 11 says, He not only makes everything beautiful in its time, he also has put eternity into man's heart. Think about that with me for a moment. He has put eternity into the heart of every human being. Everyone sitting here, everyone watching online, everybody driving back and forth on 123, every one of us has eternity in our hearts. What does that mean? Part of the image of God in human beings means that we have this thirst for significance, for meaning, and for something bigger than ourselves and greater than this world. There's a hunger for legacy. People are always talking about, thinking about legacies. There's a hunger for lasting significance, to make a difference. Why do people give a lot of money to get their name put on a building when they're not going to be here to see it? Or in a scholarship when they're not going to be here to, to give it away. Because we have this hunger, this desire to know that there's more to life than just what's under the sun. Than just what's here in my lifetime. There's this desire to be a part of something bigger. Something eternal. God has put that there. The God who alone has immortality has planted the seed of that in our hearts. And yet, it says, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, God is up to things that we can't put together and see in the moment. Who can discern the mind of the Lord? This isn't pessimistic. This is realistic. We have limitations. But just because we can't know everything doesn't mean we can't know enough to know and trust God. And it doesn't mean God might not be up to something good and amazing. God declares the beginning and the end because he's already there at the end. He's not bound by these things. We have such a limited vision, and that's our challenge. I found this uh, illustration that maybe will be helpful. If you know what a pixel is, a pixel is a little dot on your screen on your phone or on the screen on that that we're looking at here. And if you can... Just see one little pixel, you don't really know what you're looking at. In fact, if you can see a bunch of little pixels, you don't really know what you're looking at. But you put all those pixels together, and you get an eagle's eye. And so you think about that, and you say, I wonder how many pixels of your life you can see right now. Five or ten? A hundred? A thousand? But you can't see the whole thing. Just because you can't see the whole thing doesn't mean there isn't something beautiful and eternal going on. It just means you can't see it. But the eternal God, who makes everything beautiful in its time, can, and he is up to something amazing and glorious in the lives of his people and his church. Jesus then comes as the fulfillment of Ecclesiastes and the fulfillment of the potentate of time. Jesus comes as the potentate of time, and Jesus comes in his humanity submitting to time as a human being like, that, like us. I love how Jesus puts time in, 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 in front of us. Jesus comes when? At just the right time, right? Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He comes at just the right time. Mark one fifteen, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. It's the right time for him to be here and he not only comes at the right time. Jesus knows what the right time is. Romans 5:6, while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Isn't that good news? 1 Corinthians 15:4, Jesus was buried that he was raised on the 3rd day, not the 2nd day, not the 4th day, on the 3rd day he was raised at the right time, because he knows what time it is in accordance with the scriptures. And Jesus will return at the right time. Might be today, might be 2,000 years from today. Acts 1, 6, and 7. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but it is for the Father to know. The God who makes everything beautiful in its time. The God who is the potentate of time has fixed the times and the seasons. And Jesus, Hebrews 9.28, having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. God knows what time it is. He is the potentate of time. What do we learn from this passage? We learn that our God is sovereign over time. He's the king of time. He has dominion over time. He's the potentate of time. He sets times and seasons for people, for churches, for nations, for his son's return. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Let's go back to verse 12. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. In Psalm 31, 14 and 15, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. What do we do with the times and seasons we are given? Well, here's a wonderful command. Be joyful. Enjoy the times and seasons that God has given to you. There is a provision of joy in every season. God is wisely ruling over your life, over our church's life, over our nation's life. And so we can rest in God's Leadership, dominion, sovereignty, God being the potentate of our seasons and times. Be joyful. Rest in what God is doing, even if you can't see it clearly. Then I love what it says. It just says simply, do good as long as you live. Do you know if you're working for God, it totally transforms your perspective on work, doesn't it? And this God is up to eternal and beautiful things in you and through you. And then it says, take pleasure in your toil. Eat and drink and take pleasure. Do you know there's a call here, I think, just to faithfulness, just to going through day by day, faithfully doing what he's put in front of us. We don't always know the nature of the time or the season that we're in. We certainly don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we know we have today. And so we can take pleasure in our toil knowing that with God, nothing is lost and God will see to the results of what we're doing. This is humility, not frustration. This is embracing and and submitting to God's rule over our lives. It's not despair. The The great creator Our God will not allow creatures like us to be his equal, and so we don't know everything that he knows, and we couldn't bear it if we did. This is dependence. It's not fatalism. We are finite. We're seeing a few pixels. He's seeing the whole picture. So we've been exploring time itself, and we're asking this question. Can we find meaning and satisfaction in the times and seasons of life? I think the answer is, if you're looking under the sun, no, you can't. But if you're under God... Oh, there's great hope and joy and meaning in the seasons and times of our lives. If we understand and welcome God as the potentate of our seasons and times, there's a place of rest, and there's a place to work, and we can do both confidently, knowing that he's in charge. So I want to just leave you with three simple thoughts for application. First is this. Put your times in God's hands. Put your times in God's hands. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you brought your life to him? Your days and seasons to him? Your hopes and dreams to him? For me, there was a a moment when, as I began to understand what it Meant to be a Christian, it meant to come under His rule, His authority, and I realized that there were big parts of my life that I had never put in His hands. My relationship with Leslie, as we were dating, my career, as I had this whole career track planned out, and I began to to pray differently. Instead of Lord, would You bless what I plan to do, Lord, what do You plan for me to do? Would You lead me in that? When I ask, and I. And I continue to need to do that and and try to do that actively and regularly. Lord, my times are in your hands. Have you done that? Do you believe that he's the sovereign over your time? Jesus always knows what time it is. And, and you know, when your times are in his hands, you don't need to fear change. As Eric did such a wonderful job in the call to worship this morning describing, we live in a world of so much change. But when you know that your times are in the hands of a sovereign, powerful, redeeming God, there is rest there. And you don't need to fear change. In fact, you can welcome change and take risks following Him. So put your times in God's hands. Second, I want to encourage you to prepare now for the time of your death. Prepare now for the time of your death. This is the reality. There's a time to be born and a time to die, and none of us knows when that is. You may be very young. You may be middle-aged. You may be getting older, but none of us knows how many days we have, but we do know this. The end is coming for all of us, and it is good for us to live with that day in mind. It's not morbidly, but it's good for us to live working backwards from what do I hope might be written about me on my gravestone? What do I hope others might experience from me and talk about on that day when I'm remembered? What do I hope to be greeted by as I encounter my maker and God after my death? Prepare now for the time of your death. Lord, teach us to number our days that we might obtain a heart of wisdom, Moses prays in Psalm 90. And finally, simply this, just make the most of your time. Ephesians 5, he talks about redeeming the time. Live, rest, work, navigate through life's times and seasons always with this in mind. Oh God, may this be for your glory. May this be for your glory.